Welcome to Adaptify. I'm Mike, I'm a paraplegic from New Zealand, and it's my mission to find the Adaptifiers of the world. People who have overcome challenges and found new, creative, interesting ways to be free despite needing to use a wheelchair for their mobility. Hey there everyone, thanks for listening in once again. When I broke my back, I looked out into the world and I looked for people like me that were adventurous and had found new ways to do things despite uh, breaking their back or, or neck. One of those people was Jeremy McGee. And Jeremy was a really active outdoors guy. And what I saw Jeremy attempting to do uh, blew my mind. He was trying to climb this kuwa, completely paralyzed. He was trying to climb this really steep mountain kuwa, be the first person to do it. And you know, guess what struck me was that he didn't want to be left behind. And that really resonated with me. So eight years, nearly eight years later, I'm chatting to Jeremy today. And um, I'm really looking forward to understanding a bit more about his mindset. Um, and also a very special project that he's founded called the Unpavement Project. Um, which is all about tracking and detailing the world's adaptive mountain bike trails so that people can go out there um, and they know what they're in for uh, ahead of time. Um, It's going to encourage adaptive riding the world over. Um, Super grateful to have Jeremy leading that and um, here today on the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. Hey, so uh, the first time I heard about you was through a, a buddy of mine, Quentin Smith, who's also been on this podcast. And he uh, sent me a link, and and you were uh, you were about to do something crazy in the mountains, um, bloody cool, or something like that. Um, and I remember seeing that, and I remember thinking, "Holy moly, this is this is going to be a guy worth uh, worth watching." So uh, I guess we'll dig into that a bit later. But um, I'm really stoked to have you on here, mate, because I've been wanting to chat to you about that and other things for uh, for a wee while. Um, just to set the scene and, and let people who are listening um, know a little bit more about you and, and how you came to be uh, on this podcast, uh, you know, can you tell us a little bit about um, wheelchair life and how you ended up uh, uh, using wheels for, uh, for mobility? Yeah, I can certainly do that. In 2001, I was just running errands on my motorcycle. I'd fall right into the statistic of um, you know, accidents usually happen within a few miles of your, of your home. I was, I don't even know if I was a mile away, just a few blocks away from my home, just running errands. And a lady just made a quick left turn in front of me. I didn't see her because I was passing a driveway and there was an RV parked on the side of the road. And so as I was kind of just quickly peering around that RV, being a safe driver, checking the driveway on the other side of it, making sure nobody was coming out of the driveway, I didn't even think that someone would turn left from the oncoming traffic into that driveway. So just taking my eyes from in front of me to that driveway for a split second was all the time it took. I looked up, car was right in front of me. And um, the vision that I have (laughs) when I remember that day is my face being smashed up against her side mirror. (laughs) I just had this this this, this, uh, white side mirror 
<laughs> in my face. And the next thing I knew, um, I was laying in the street and I couldn't get up. Um, I was fully aware, completely conscious. Um, I had a brand new helmet. Um, thank God I had that on. So no brain injury, no, no nothing like that. And I was working as a, a lifeguard, at, at a beach lifeguard at the time. So I was very familiar with assessing injuries in an emergency situation. So I naturally just applied my knowledge to myself. And the first thing I realized is I, I couldn't get up and I, I couldn't feel my lower body. So I knew I had a spinal injury. And uh, the second thing I realized was that um, it was very difficult to breathe, very painful. And so I realized I, I, I broke some ribs. Turns out I broke almost all of them. <laughs> and if you've had, ever had a broken rib before, yeah, it's almost worse than the spinal cord injury. Um, yeah, I have. I have. I <laughs> pain, man. Forget, forget sneezing, burping, coughing, anything for a couple months. <laughs> and then I, I realized I tasted blood in my mouth. My, the, the third um, injury I, I was assessing, I tasted blood in my mouth. So I knew that my broken ribs had probably punctured my lungs then. Oh. And then the fourth thing I realized was serious. Um, I could feel my hands, my arms, and my face getting cold really, really fast. Mm. I could uh, feel tingling. Um, and so I, I realized that I was um, you know, either bleeding internally or from where I could no longer feel, um, and, and that this was a serious situation. And, uh, that, that warm summered asphalt was very inviting. I just, uh, <laughs> it felt the, the warmth was, uh, was really comfortable. And I, you know, I, I honestly, I felt at peace I, and I was just, uh, I started to let myself fall asleep. Um, I felt really, really tired. And the, the main thing going through my head was like, I'm all right. This is okay. You know, it was very peaceful, really, which is kind of crazy to think of. And I just wanted – the thought that I remember is that I wanted my mom and my friends to know that I was fine. That mm. I was okay. I was okay. It was saying goodbye right there. But uh, a man's voice, uh, a, a man standing over me was yelling at me, telling me that paramedics were right there. And he was not lying. There were paramedics right there. They were eating lunch at a taco shop. And oh wow. How long, <laughs> yeah. How long does it take to, you know, throw down your food and run across the street? You know, just a couple seconds, you know? Um, so they they were on me uh, right away. And my little moment there in the street, although it, it seemed like a long time, I had a, I had a lot of thoughts and processing that happened, but it was all just a matter of a few seconds. And one of one of the paramedics grabbed their ambulance, pulled it around. They they backboarded me and shoved me in the ambulance, had me sign something, uh, a release form or something like that. And uh, <laughs> wow, to prep me for surgery, I, I guess it was for. And, yeah. uh, they, and the the paramedic in the back of the ambulance with me said okay, here you go. And he like had a syringe ready. And as soon as he stuck it in me, I, 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 next thing I remember, I, I woke up in an MRI tube, um, after surgery, they had me in surgery within 22 minutes. They said, 
Wow. Um, and saved my life. Holy. And, uh, yeah. So I don't remember if it was the doctor or the MRI technician so long ago now. God, this was 18 and a half years ago now. Um, is it really wow. that long? 2001? We're in 2020, 19. Yeah, it'll be 19 years uh, in September this year. The memories are getting further and further away. <laughs> you describe it so so beautifully. It's amazing how that you do have those moments of clarity um, and, and how time seems to stretch out. You know, you said you had all those thoughts in and, and the space of, you know, uh, probably less than a minute, you know, a number of seconds. And, um, you know, so you, you were, how old were you then? Were you uh, sort of in your 20s or? I was earlier? 25, yep. So you're 25 and... You know, when you woke up in the in the hospital, um, what were some of the first thoughts that were going through your mind then? That was really interesting um, because when I woke up in the MRI tube, like I said, it was either the doctor or the MRI technician. I can't remember. I think it was the do- actual surgeon. And the first thing they did was ask me if I could, you know, move my toes or, or feel anything. And, you know, of course – I tried and there was nothing and I, and I said, no. And the voice said, okay, before I tell you anything, just know that those paramedics saved your life. And if they weren't there, you would probably not be here. Wow. Because yeah, I guess I had, um, split the perennial area and, uh, some would refer to it as your chode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, against my gas tank on the motorcycle upon impact oh. that just, there was nowhere for the skin to go so it just split right open and um i was bleeding <laughs> really really bad i guess mm-hmm. and um, and it was i couldn't feel it and so they said the first thing that they did in surgery was um stop that bleeding and then he proceeded to you know go down a list of of injuries and then, you know, the most severe of which and the permanent one was a thoracic spine injury. What, sort of, what level were you, were you classified as? T10. T10. So, I mean, I'm lucky, <laughs> you know. So, one, I'm, from, the, from the immediate get-go, I knew I was just lucky to be alive. And then you know, afterwards realize that that's a, a, you know, relatively low spinal cord injury. Mm. Um, so, uh, I'm, uh, from the get go, I just felt lucky that that was my saving grace emotionally. So had you always been an optimistic sort of person because, you know, to be able to actually see that as, as being lucky, not, not everyone can see that. Not everyone focuses on, on what they uh, what they have how how would how did you how did your life up until this point prepare you to be so optimistic um i would definitely not classify myself as optimistic you know we uh for some reason we you know if us with disabilities get get lumped into that you know <laughs> um it being optimistic i i don't think i'm optimistic honestly i think i'm realistic um, and mm. I, I, you know, and I, all that to say, like, it wasn't easy and it's still not easy, <laughs> you know, mm. um, living life in a wheelchair sucks, uh, no matter what level you are. And, um, someone who's a higher level of injury can, um, 
can say, okay, man, all right, <laughs> to that, you know? Um, it sucks regardless. Um, and, yeah. uh, but I've always operated under the philosophy of it. It is what it is, you know? Um, I, I've got a lot that I want to accomplish with my life and, um, dwelling on the fact that it sucks is not going to get me anywhere. Um, I want to honor that, that feeling and recognize it because it is a real thing, you know, but I, I don't want to give it too much time and energy because it's not going to take me anywhere. So it's a matter of, um, what, what's the situation and, um, where do we go from here? Uh, more of a realistic mindset than positive. Does that make sense? I totally get it. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, you're lying there, you've had your MRI, your doctor just said to you, you're lucky to be alive. And it's thanks to the paramedics that were nearby. Uh, what was some of the, the, the next things that you, well, perhaps what was one of the first goals you set yourself at that um, from that point onwards? Um, just getting out of the fucking hospital is goal number one. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. So I did everything I could to get out as fast as I could. And uh, I was only in there for six weeks, which, um, from what I hear is not, is, uh, not, not too bad relatively. Mm. Um, yeah. Cause especially was, considering you broke all your ribs and you had all these other injuries, right? Yeah. And I, you know, I had the turtle shell on and, and everything still when, when I got out. Um, and I, I was on my own <laughs> off into the big wide world to figure it out for myself. How did that feel? What was that? What was that like? What were the first, first few days and weeks like? Oh man, pretty, pretty hard. <laughs> um, I had a really good roommate at the time, my buddy Darren. Um, and, uh, man, he, he spotted me on rent. Um, he cleaned me up when I, mess myself one time and I was just too bummed out to do anything about it. Mm. Um, you know, held, held my head and brushed my teeth when I was too weak to do it. Um, he's a, he is a good man. He, he is a good man. And, uh, so luckily I had him to, to really, really help me out. And then I, you know, I just, I got, I got stronger again pretty quickly. And I was so young, you know, and, um, I bought a set of hand controls basically off the, this pretty much homeless guy <laughs> threw him in my forerunner and, uh, drove out, um, to Colorado from California, went skiing, <laughs> um, with, uh, and if I would have known then what I know now about back surgery, <laughs> I would not have done that. <laughs> but no one told me. No one told me anything that, you know, what I couldn't do. So I was like, okay. <laughs> I do remember the day, the first day, um, the doctor told me I could take my turtle shell off. And I remember, you know, rolling out to the car, leaving his office without the turtle shell for the first time. And I remember feeling very um, kind of exposed and, and frail. That was an interesting feeling. So tell us about this turtle shell for those um, those that are not familiar with that. What, what is a turtle shell? It's just like this uh, two-sided uh, molded plastic 
shell that fits over your your back and your torso, basically over your upper body with your arms sticking out and prevents you from um, twisting like torsionally. Gotcha. Yep. Just like wearing, it's a cast for your back basically. So you didn't have any any metalware put into your spine, you know, like titanium rods or anything. That was the I turtle did. shell was used. You had that as well. I had I had metal rods, and um, that's actually why I'm paralyzed. <laughs> Only fifty percent of my spinal column was compromised in my original injury, hmm. um, and three days later they put rods and screws to hold it together. And uh, two of those screws went through my spinal cord. Oh. So who knows if I would have recovered or not. Um, but any chance of recovery was squelched when they put those screws in there. And honestly, the surgeon was kind of a hack. Um, I was having a ton of pain from those rods. Mm. And um, I had them removed uh, a year and a half later. And when I woke up from that surgery, that spine surgeon, who was exceptionally good, uh, was uh, standing over me when I woke up. And he, he said, uh, oh, good, you're awake. I, I couldn't wait to, to show you this. And he's like, and he showed me the rods that were in me. And he touched his finger to it. And his finger instantly started bleeding because the, the rod was so sharp. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they clipped these freaking rods and put them in me and that sharp part was actually at the top of uh my injury where i could feel <laughs> so um it was no wonder i was having pain so yeah the doctor that put me back together kind of screwed me <laughs> if you know what i mean totally uh bugger yeah i had my rods taken out about the same time after my surgery and it was amazing how much energy i had uh, compared to when they were in, I, I just, for some reason, my body was fighting against those things and sucking up a bunch of my energy and had them removed. And yeah, it was like a, you know, there was a recovery period, of course, but after that, I was just, um, you know, double the energy I had beforehand. So yeah, they uh, suck. But, um, you know, I hear horror stories of, um, you know, years down the road of of guys that have gotten their rods taken out you know what happens to their back over years and years and years of being in the chair so i don't know <laughs> yeah it's it's beyond me to make that decision but i think definitely consult your physician guys yeah there we go <laughs> you're, you're thinking about having your rods taken out and i know uh Tanel bolt recently if you listen to this Tanel, uh you know Tanel had surgery to have her rods removed and the doctors ended up um, keeping them in there for some reason so um oh, she uh or, or repairing the ones that were in there and keeping them in so yeah case by case basis but for me uh for me i certainly uh, have enjoyed having them out um i do have more i did have rods put back in later <laughs> um in 2012 oh you did I, <laughs> yeah well i ended up um having some sort of unexplained um infection in my spine mm. has nothing to do with being um in a wheelchair or anything they don't know how it happened I was having tons of back pain and I went in, had an MRI. There was nothing there. Went, ended up back in the hospital with back pain three and a half weeks later and had another MRI and my L2 vertebrae was gone. 
an huh. infection that completely ate the bone away. It was gone and started and the infection was starting to work on L1. So freaking crazy thing, you know, I ended up having surgery and, you know, L2 and L1, uh, well, L1 then removed to eradicate the infection. And then my spine put back together there and rods and screws back in. <laughs> man, so, what a journey. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> 21 surgeries later. <laughs> oh, no way. Yeah, man. <laughs> that Not 21 surgeries from just that, just over time. That's yeah. I mean. Yeah, wow. Well, you're, you're certainly going to uh, you're, you're gonna give your body a, a heck of a lot of use over your lifetime, mate. There's no doubt about it. Um, there's this kind of quote from um, Hunter S. Thompson, you know, talking about how he wants to go to his grave, like basically smoldering and like, uh, you know, oh, yeah. in, in pieces, you know, um, and, and then he knows he's had a good life. So you're well on your way to that by the sound of it. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so, I'm, you know, I've got this vision of you driving in your forerunner out to Colorado. You know, what was one of the hardest things you had to overcome during that period? Oh, man, um, so many things. Um, well, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, going from a semi-pro, um, border cross racer to falling over on the bunny slope with six people helping me. Um, that's mm. definitely a big piece of humble pie. Um, so how did you, how did you move through that? How did you get, how did you get over that? How did you learn to accept, uh, accept that? Well, I, I'm one of those people that it takes a lot of work for me to be good at something. I got to really work hard at it. I'm naturally pretty uncoordinated. <laughs> so <laughs> just a lot of work, man. Uh, I just, just, just kept doing it over and over and over and over again. Repetition is, is the answer to your question. Repetition is how, is how I get over that. <laughs> yeah. You're obviously driven to, to get good though. Right. So, um, you got to have that drive in order to keep keep going, and and I guess everyone knows what it's like to fall over on the you know metaphorical ski field when you're learning. Um, it's you know it takes courage to keep going and and keep uh, you know keep falling over and then keep getting up and and going again. So you know what what was it about? Was it just the love of being in the mountains? Was it um, you know was it did it give you a way to like take your mind off the other things in your life? You know, what was it that kept you, uh, enabled you to get up again and keep going? That's a really good question. And I've thought about that a lot over the years. And the fact that I don't know the answer to that question is, is what I think about mostly because I, I think I was just young and dumb. Honestly, I just, um, I never considered anything other anything else. Um, and I don't think I was just aware enough of myself or, or my situation to really, um, think that deeply about it. I just, uh, I don't remember really thinking about it to be totally honest with you. Um, and, and just doing it. <laughs> so I'll give you an example for me. I was, I was really into surfing, uh, just before my accident and, one of the things I wanted to do was just, I just wanted to 
keep going with my life as it was as it was going beforehand. I, I just I I wanted to pick up from where I left off essentially, and so I all I could think about was how I was going to surf again and how I was going to do this. And and in essence, that formed a goal, right? That formed a formed a, something that I wanted to do. And I just I just guess I kept chipping away at it and learning and, yeah. and trying until eventually I could you know jump on a wave ski and go surfing and do it independently. I actually went out in the in the weekend just been and, and I got I got smashed. I hadn't been out surfing for about two years and I just I totally got nailed. I got caught in a rip and went <laughs> it was a bit comical oh, really. Oh. But um but that's an aside. I guess uh, uh, the point I was making is you know I would, I just wanted to pick up from where I left on off and and I guess you were a you know border cross rider and so you, you just maybe you just wanted to um, get back to to some level uh, of where you were beforehand, and um, it was you know by default you just you just picked up uh, the baton and and kept going, albeit in a different different form, right? I think you just nailed it on the head when you said by default. I didn't make the you know conscious decision. I'm gonna do what I was doing before, no matter what it takes. I know I don't remember ever thinking that or saying that to myself. And I think yeah, just by default. I just um, got just right back into it. You know, an interesting thing happened for me is once I'd learned to, to surf again, you know, adapted surfing, once I'd learned and I'd sort of felt as I, I'd achieved that, I no longer felt so driven to do it. And, uh, and in fact, I, um, I realized that in some cases the effort to do that, you know, it's a like solid half day by the time you get in your wetsuit and you you know, get everything in the car and you get to the beach and you, you know, it's like a major exertion of energy. And I'd sort of made peace with it at that point. And I I felt like I could let it go. I felt like I could actually um, accept that, you know, the surfing that I knew was actually no longer going to be, you know, the way it was. And I could make a, you know, I could satisfy that I'd given it everything I could to, to get back to where I was, but then I could make a rational decision as to whether or not I'd spend a lot of time doing it. And it was quite it was quite good, but it took me a while to figure out why I, why that was. And um, I guess my advice for for those of you listening that you know want to try something that in a different way, you know, maybe you're you're injured and you you want to try something is, is do your best to see if you can do it and in a new way, and then be happy if you decide that it's not for you at that point. You know that that's that's the way I look at it, and. Um, you know, I'll only go skiing now if the the snow's really good and I've got the energy and the to to do so. Otherwise, I just kind of go, ah, you know, there's other things that I've I've discovered, <laughs> you know, that that I that I'm into, you know. Well, you're you have different goals now. <laughs> yeah, know? totally, you're, and that's okay, you're working right? Working on big things, and uh, you know, like we were talking about um, before the podcast is. You know, our time is very, very valuable. Um, when when you're building an empire, <laughs> time is the most valuable thing that you have. And, um, you know, there was a time in my life, uh, pre and post injury, when I surfed every day, you know, mm. <laughs> but I wasn't working on anything big then. I had my entire day. My main event was, okay, was surfing that day. Mm. Um and I just don't have that kind of time now. <laughs> um, my That's not where my priorities are. And that's kind of why I've gotten into the mountain biking is because there's so many like less logistics involved. Mm. I can, I don't need anybody to help me. It's uh, super easy to, to load that thing up 
and get to the trailhead and like knock out a quick ride, you know, mm. even late in an afternoon one day and, and get back home in time for dinner, you know? And I've, I've taken maybe an hour and a half out of mm. my day where it's like half a day literally to go surfing. Totally. I was speaking to a, a sort of a long time wheelchair user early on in my recovery and he said, you know, everything takes longer. And, you know, I realized that pretty quickly, but he said, you know, in terms of your recreation, you got to find something that's quick and easy and you can do by yourself. Otherwise, you know, you, you, you're just not going to have the, the energy or the time to, to do it. And, um, so yeah, mountain biking, adaptive mountain biking, um, hand cycling, um, you know, there's a bunch of other, um, there's a bunch of other activities out there that can be and easy. I think, um, having something that's even easier than that, like mountain biking, is you know a really good adventure sport where there's less logistics than you know say surfing or skiing but still having that thing where i say it's like the equivalent of going for a jog like for if you're you know able-bodied person you throw your shoes on and run out the door Mm. you know you know when you just got to get a quick 30 minute jog in or whatever have to have we have to have the equivalent of that um where it's you know, as close to as easy as that as possible. I do anyways. That's what I need. So you've got your mountain biking, which is, takes a little bit longer, but what are some of the things there that give you that, um, give you that, uh, that feeling or that, um, uh, I, got, I suppose in some ways it's a, a little bit of, uh, escape, but it's a little bit of, um, enjoyment. It's a, you know, a little bit of, um, uh, exercise perhaps what, what are some things that you've found over the years uh, that, that meet that uh, quick and easy criteria and, and it's just for exercise uh, it's not about enjoyment it's not about liking it it's just for exercise <laughs> that's it um, I have um, one of those uh, you know beach cruiser like upright style hand cycles mm-hmm. um, I its name is little horchata um, it's kind of like the type of bike where you need to be wearing a sombrero and have a drink holder, you know, Gotcha. <laughs> but I'm telling you, it's a, it's an arduous workout. It's, you know, cranking one of those things up a hill is, is, is hard and, you know, 30 to 60 minutes on that thing. And, um, I've, I, I, I have a really good, uh, workout. So, when it's if it's late in the day and I just don't have time to get to the gym or something like that, I jump on little horchata. Um, I don't have to change my clothes or anything. I jump on the clothes I have. Sometimes I put headphones on. Sometimes I don't. And I just I just crank that thing. You know, up, I, I live right on the beach right here. I I crank it up and down. Uh, you know, the PCH here um, for about thirty minutes to an hour and. That's my that's my equi- equivalent of quote unquote jogging. Gotcha, nice. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I see a, a lot of guys with uh, these uh, like striker, you know, especially the guy, uh, guys and girls that are um, quadriplegic. They have uh, this attachment that attached to their wheelchairs, and they can hand crank that. and And I see them getting a lot of a uh, lot of pleasure out of that. So um, those things are pretty sweet. I have a, a powered attachment for my chair. Um, I call it the surf checker. Um, that's how I, that's how I get around, run errands, uh, run my dog, um, get down to the beach and check the waves really quick. And, you know, and, uh, 
when I'm riding little horchata, I'm not going to go anywhere else with it. I'm not going to stop by the store or take it to the bar or whatever. It is just exercise only. So that's my kind of my um, logic for having those two pieces of equipment. One, they're for different things. One's for running errands, bar hopping, checking the surf, and then the other one's for pure exercise only. Nice. Yeah, that's great. They're um, great things to have in your uh, your arsenal of um, equipment. Yeah, nice. Um, so you're in Colorado and you're skiing uh, with an adaptive program, presumably. And um, yep. and tell us tell us what happened next. Tell us what what um, you know. Obviously, you got fairly good at uh, got good at sit skiing. Uh, but what was yeah. what was what that's was funny. Some, what was so? Well, no, I've I've no doubt you got proficient enough to to ski ski in places you wanted to ski. Um, what um, what other what other projects did you did you start or, or um, attempt uh, during that time? Well, it's kind of crazy how everything happened. I, I did my first turns in a sit ski at Breckenridge, um, and then you know all the all the adaptive programs in the area all have their, you know, kind of annual sit ski camp. Mm. So I stuck around for the challenge Aspen one at Snowmass, and then stuck around for the one at Vail and then stuck around for the adaptive adventures one and kind of just, uh, did uh, sit ski camp hopping. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Oh my God, I learned so much about, fitting and you know learn from you know some of the some of the best and after that i came out you know able to ski um efficiently on my own and um you know kind of decided that i wanted to take it somewhere and you know at the time i was thinking well i can't surf on my own but i can ski on my own because i could then um can't anymore um, but I could then, so I, I moved to, to Mammoth. I moved to the mountains, hmm. um, so that I could just ski every day. And, uh, man, for seven years, I skied over a hundred days a year, more like 150 days a year. Um, wow. And skied my ass off. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So that's kind of how that evolved. <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. That's, uh, that's. That's what dreams are made of for uh, for ski bums out there listening. So yeah, totally paralyzed, and yet you're still able to ski for uh, 100, 150 days a year, following your uh, following your dream. It's yeah, so it good, was epic, man. man. So so good. And it was a San Diego beach boy, you know, living in the mountains and in the snow um, for the first time, and I just felt um, so like proud and happy to be, you know, living in the elements and, um, surviving and braving the elements for the first time in my life. I, I was having a good time, like shoveling snow and scraping ice off my windshield and drinking scotch in the cold and looking at the stars. I, I, I loved it, man. <laughs> hey, I've just been, I've just driven through the, um, recently I drove up to Reno to catch up with Roy and Elena and, um, Oh, cool. The 
you know, there wasn't a great deal of snow there at that time, but uh, but I'd been in Canada a few weeks before that, and snow as a wheelchair user is hard going, man. What <laughs> what are what are some things you learned uh, how to how to deal with that? Oh, definitely. You you have to have knobby tires, wheels with knobby tires, and those wheels need to be smaller than your regular wheels with slick tires on them because um, the tires are bigger. And so um, it's going to mess with the, the angle of your dump. So smaller wheels with the, with the knobby bigger tires, insulated gloves that are um, not going to get torn up on mm. the, pushing the knobs, knobby tires over and over and over again. I used um, belay gloves, which have a really um, thick leather, a reinforced palm and I just wore um, wool inserts inside the belay gloves and then um, a freewheel on the front really, really helps. But on the, on the big snow days, I didn't even bring my chair, man. <laughs> I would um, scoot on my butt through the snow. It was way faster <laughs> than bringing my chair and then climb into my truck drive to wherever I was going. And then, you know, hopefully there was someone there to, you know, help me out. Like if I was going to a friend's house at night or whatever, they would just come out and piggyback me or something like that. Mm. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's, that's, uh, that's commitment, man. Um, got to drink with the boys. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> that's really cool. Actually, it's pretty satisfying to leave your wheelchair behind. Um, you know, especially if, uh, you know, you've got friends to help you out. One of the things I thought I might do first after being injured was uh, was travel, was backpack around the world without my wheelchair. Like uh, just just do this adventure where um, I had to rely and um, encourage people to uh, to assist me all the way around the world. But um, I quickly came to my senses. I thought that would, uh, <laughs> and it, you know, in concept, wow. in concept, that I'm, sounded I'm- awesome, but. Uh, Man, what a what a tricky what a tricky proposition that would be. Yeah, I'm trying to digest that one. That's a crazy thought because yeah, it's just it's point A to B, you know. I wanted to test I wanted to out. test the human I guess I wanted to test human spirit and I wanted to test uh, other people's attitudes and and um, and actually I, I I guess I wanted to sort of prove that um, People out there would help you, you know, and you would, you would, uh, you would, uh, <laughs> you would be able to do it. But yeah, I'm not not game enough to do it uh, right now. But if anyone out there is listening and wants to try that, it'd, it'd definitely be a world first. Um, you know, navigate your way around the world without your wheelchair. Yeah, you know, just using the uh, the goodwill of others and and your uh, your uh, tenacity. Um, yeah, well, if you're a, a low strong injury, you don't. You know, you don't necessarily need your chair to get around. It's just, uh, you know, protecting your body and yeah, be 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 tricky. You get your hands on the ground and scoot. I mean, you can really get a lot of places. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, so Jeremy, uh, as I mentioned at the start of the interview, I uh, you first caught my attention because you were you were going to climb up some kuwa somewhere, um, and I presume that was at some um, mammoth. Yep. Um, did you did you do that? What was that all about? Yeah, we did it. <laughs> yeah, we did it. God, what year? In 
2012, in June of 2012, uh, there's this, this special mountain in the Mammoth area. It has this couloir that holds snow almost all year round, most years. And, you know, m- most of the locals, you know, climb, go out there and climb and ski that thing, you know, in the spring and summer as the, the snow for the road that leads up to it melts out. Mm. My friend would, my friends would go out there every year and I was like, fuck man, I'm going to go. <laughs> and totally. so it, it just kind of, uh, became an, an obsession and yeah, man, um, so you, this I, uh, is basically, you know, something that you have to ice axe your way up, right? Or boot pack your way up in some way. Yeah, that's what we thought at first, that I was going to be ice axing up this thing. But, you know, it's, um, I mean, relatively low angle compared to, you know, climbing, which is more vertical. Mm. This was more ski angle, which, you know, it's average 50 degree slope, mm. which, you know, it's, it's quite steep. vertical, but yeah. that's steep for for really steep for skiing Mm. um but when when it comes in terms of climbing it it's a lot different so what basically well basically what i did is i put um a flyer like a poster flyer in the ski patrol room Mm. with uh saying like hey i'm a paraplegic and i want to climb this mountain does anybody on patrol want to help me and uh (laughs) i put little tear-offs with my phone number you know this is back in uh, uh 2000 God, it might have even been. Yeah, that was in twenty. That was in twenty twelve when I actually did that. Um, and uh, w- one of the guys on patrol, you know, called me up one day and was like, "Yeah, I want to go." Um, and he and I are now have become our best friends. <laughs> but he wasn't the climber that actually ended up taking me up the mountain. He uh, ended up having a last minute trip to Israel that he needed to go on. But he connected me with Charlie Barrett and Matt Waugh, who are um, professional climbers in the in the area. And those guys, with a crew of others, um, took me up that mountain. And what we decided after tons of practice and experimentation and trying to figure it out that I, you know, I'd lay it on my stomach in a plastic kid's sled that you know we kind of insulated with some foam and a and a survival blanket. <laughs> and you know, we set up ropes and, and put a Jumar ascender on there and kind of fashioned a, a pull-up handle to it. And I cranked some pull-ups. Yeah, right. So someone would lead a pitch, they'd put an anchor in, a snow, snow stake or yep. whatever, and then you'd um, you'd pull yourself up this rope all the way up this damn cooler. Exactly. And, you know, I, the, the goal was to do it under my own power, but it became quickly evident, given all the friction involved and everything, that I was – not going to be able to do it under my own power. And it, that was kind of a, you know, a hard realization to swallow, but whatever it is what it is. And so those guys did uh, a belay assist on me mm. where they, they hooked me up into a harness and leaned against the rope. Yep. And so when I pulled up, I would have their body weight, um, kind of give me like a little bit of an assist. So, I mean, I ended up, in the, in the hospital after that expedition with uh, dehydration and exhaustion. Um, <laughs> so I know that I pushed my body to its absolute uh, limits and passed them. So uh, regardless of it was a sister or not, it was, it was everything I could do. And I got on top of that mountain. So we, and we did make a documentary film about it, which was 
even harder than the actual event. <laughs> um, that's crazy. Making a movie is, is a huge task. Um, and, uh, people can see that we have DVD. We, we only have DVDs available cause it was so long ago. Um, but we still have some left. If anybody wants to get a DVD, they can go to, uh, bloody or drop in project.com and get okay, those. Cool. Um, or if they email me, you know, I can, um, there's a low resolution link I can send them. Cool, man. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll that was fun to go those. on tour with that film. That was really fun. Oh man, epic! Uh, uh, <laughs> I can I can only imagine what was uh, I, I guess going through your mind as you're you know jumaring up there. I mean, in, in one point you're you're probably thinking this is great to be in the mountains, and at another point you're also probably thinking this is really bloody hard, and and this is not maybe this is not the way I wanted to, um, to do this, you know? Um, and, and I guess you, you did it, you succeeded and, and, you know, you could put that aside, right. Um, and that, that must've been a good feeling, was it? Well, yeah, it was definitely really hard. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I couldn't eat anything. I was so nervous. I, I had, um, you know, a packet of almond butter and a rock star in the morning and that was it. And, you know, it was cranking pull-ups immediately, you know, just after sunrise and that hurt. Um, and the guys, yeah, <laughs> had to, I remember Charlie stopping me like, Hey man, stop and look, look around, look at this view. <laughs> he had, cause I was super focused. Um, but yeah, but yeah, it was, it was painful. Um, I, I, I had a, you know, old nerve injury in my left arm uh growing up playing football and that came into play on the mountain my left arm was locking up uh, i ran out of water i was super dehydrated and uh yeah it was hard it was it was really really hard um but yeah um who knows if another paraplegic will ever sit on top of that mountain i i, I don't i don't know um that's, uh, I mean, in a way, you 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 tested the extremes of what you your body and mind could do, um, and you know, and you've you've proven it's as possible, right? So if there's someone else out there that's, um, you know, that wants to, you know, is maybe thinking about doing something similar, well, you know, you led the way, man. You 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 can prove that it uh, that it can be done, and that in itself is. Uh, such a, a worthwhile thing to do to give to community. You may not have ever thought that that was um, that was what uh, you'd be doing, but um, but certainly by by pushing yourself to the limit, you uh, you give other people um, um, the hope to be able to do the same, right? Um, and it and it pushes yeah. it pushes the community uh, further along. It it um, it uh, you know I mean. Look at what guys are doing on Sitskis now. Um, Trevor Peterson, you know, springs to mind. You know, that 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 was possible because of the progression of people before him. You know, um, and the people before them. You know, so um, you know what you're doing with the unpavement, and I'm really keen to talk about that now. Um, is is doing just that. You know, it's it's testing what's possible on a um, adaptive mountain bike and showing people what trails are rideable and what what aren't and um, you know, providing a base of knowledge so that people can build on that, you know. So, you know, it's fantastic. Yeah. You know, thanks for doing I, that, man. It's, I really appreciate it. Well, it's, it's really just playing the best hand that I have, you know. Um, here I've, I've got this bike because uh, 
I wanted to have a relationship with nature. Um, life in a wheelchair is kind of relegated to the pavement. And I wanted to get out there and explore trails. And as awesome as these bikes are, I've gotten into some really precarious situations. I've even been helicoptered out once. And, you know, I, I travel a lot and usually on my own and I have will be with my have my bike with me and I want to ride. You know, I want to go explore trails wherever I'm at. And, um, you know, I stop at bike shops and coffee shops and talk to people and, you know, try to figure out where I could go. And, mm-hmm. you know, for the rest of the world, it's it's kind of a new unknown thing, you know, and the information just does not exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I called up Trail Forks. You know, they're one of the bigger mountain bike um mountain bike trail information resources. And I was like, Hey, what do you guys think about, you know, providing adaptive info, uh, info for adaptive riders. So, you know, someone like me can just use the app like anybody else. And they're like, hell yes, let's do it. So (laughs) that's kind of how it started. Um, and what they asked for was, um, something simple, a rating system that was really, really simplified. Um, Cause there's other guys out there doing the same thing. Um, and they provide so much like really, really good information, really good information. Um, but when it comes to, uh, something that can be, you know, duplicatable across a, a broad spectrum, you mm-hmm. know, um, that's what, that's what trail forks wanted. So I just came up with this rating system that all it does, it does only one thing. It answers the question, do you need a support rider or not? That's basically what it does. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So that when you're traveling by yourself, you know where you can go uh, safely. Um, Cause even like fire roads and things like that, there's often, you know, there's gates and, and uh, impassable obstacles you mm. know, some of the time. So and to you know, have those identified is really crucial. Um, yeah. Cause to go through all the effort of getting out for a ride and you're like, crap, I can't get through the gate. You know? <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I think just about every, just about almost every or every second place I go to explore on my hand cycle, there's a gate and uh, yeah, some some barrier blocking the way to this path. Yeah. Um, and I I don't usually go on my own. I usually have uh, my family with me or, or friends um, and it's quite funny, especially if I, I just go with my wife, Kirsten, the two of us trying to haul this heavy um, hand, hand mountain bike over this over gates and things. Um, oh, yeah. But, you know, having having contact information for the landowner or the, the trail owner in advance would uh, would be super helpful. And, um, you know, some, sometimes those gates have combination locks and, you know, I've, I've, get, I've received the combination lock or I've been able to go pick up a key from a farmer who um who says yeah you can you can uh you know use this key to open the gate you know um but you know having that knowledge somewhere uh somewhere like uh, on your app you're talking about on trail forks uh, would be yep. would be invaluable so um so, so yeah oh my god it's it's huge to to know where you can go and then you know of course another part of the project is we do work with um land management on changing things and upgrading things. Um, you know, if a trail, we don't ever want to change the nature of a trail or dumb anything down, but if there's a trail where it just takes a, you know, maybe a a little change here and there, 
to allow a whole other user group through, that's a no-brainer. So we work with land management on on the, making things you know more friendly for for our our crazy bikes. Um, and then the rating system, you know, doesn't operate on its own. Um, uh, for all the stuff that's in the middle, that's a maybe. You know, there's we have um, our trail blog, and the big thing is a, a reliance on video because mm. that really is the best resource right there to be able to watch an adaptive bike go down a trail and, you know, mostly uncut video, there's nothing better. There's not a better resource than that. So, and then also I'm only one guy and there's a lot of trails out there. So right now we're formalizing the trail documentation protocol and training ambassadors to document trails in their respective areas. And the goal is over a course of 10 years, to basically just slowly gather the data. Mm. And then, you know, in a decade, you'll be able to use, and also MTB Project and um, Single Tracks are also adopting the rating system. So there's three trail resources right there that are going to have adaptive info. Um, also, all trails, uh, four, four resources. And so hopefully we can, you know, get the data to a point where, you know, in 10 years from now that anybody with an adaptive bike can go out there and, and know what they're getting into. It's pretty fun, man. It's so good. Uh, well, um, I've got some trails in New Zealand that I could add some, uh, some details to, um, for sure. We'll plan on being a unpavement project ambassador. There we go, man. Tell us about, um, so you said trail forks, mountain bike, uh, something like NTB, uh, what was the other platform? Um, There's uh, now Trail Forks is the only one that has officially adopted and implemented the system. Okay, um, the other ones are working. Uh, they're, they're a work in progress. Yeah, and the I think it's a MTB project currently has uh, an adaptive mountain bike section, but um, it's not um, all that useful yet. Um, so MTB project Trail Forks MTB project very soon. And then single tracks and all trails um, soon as well. Um, okay. But the other part of this is signage because not everybody is technical. You know, not everybody is on their phone mm, uh, doing true. their research on on trails and on the route they're going to do. Some people just want to go out for a ride and not be on their device and um, be able to know where to go based on the signage. So the other thing we're working on is, is having proper signage, you know, in multi-use areas, you'll see, you know, an equestrian symbol with an arrow for like, you know, equestrian ride arounds and things like that. Mm. So very similar signage to that. Well, at um, every trailhead, um, there'll be the adaptive symbol um, and the rating, um, but also for identifying ride arounds and at main trailhead sign spots where you know all the information is located there'll be further explanation of of the rating system and the and the signage so we're also working on that and that's a you know it's just really cool to be working on something bigger than myself that's gonna hopefully you know be in play long after i'm gone so good to have a 10-year vision i really like that i think in this day and age uh, there isn't enough of that long-term thinking. Um, you know, it, it's actually amazing. Um, 
many a business book that I've read, they say it's um, people underestimate what they can achieve in, in 10 years, but they overestimate what they can achieve in one, right? So if you've got this vision for 10 years, I mean, that'll, you know, you know, I know that that'll go quickly. Um, but to have that vision um, so far out in 10 years' time, you know, we'll, we'll all be enjoying this resource, right? Which is, yeah, man. Which is amazing. Well, when you're talking big data, I mean, yeah. that doesn't happen fast. You know, we're talking big data here and uh, there's a lot of trails. <laughs> what are some of the things you've come up against to prevent this from happening? Or, you know, some of the, um, I guess, systemic things that, that you're seeing out there right now? Oh, yeah, there, there's a ton. Um, you know, the biggest controversy um, really is the, the e-assist controversy. Mm. Mm. Um, that, that's a big one. And so, and that's going to be, you know, things are going to change and things are going to have to change. Um, so that controversy is an interesting one. I love to have that conversation. Also, uh, you know, there's so many, I mean, when we're talking all the different ability levels, disability Mm. levels and the equipment too, like there's bikes that are much more capable than mine. Um, and there's, you know, bikes that are, you know, a lot less capable and, you know, how do we, you know, grade a trail taking all that into mind that that's a big obstacle. And then also the, a lot of the federal laws, um, concerning wheeled or powered vehicles in wilderness. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a, that's another big one too. And, you know, on, on the federal level that we're, things are are going to evolve. People in wheelchairs are doing stuff now, man. <laughs> yeah, and they're and and they use wheels. <laughs> so, and they use know. wheels. Yeah. yeah. It's that's interesting. Yeah, we have a similar thing here in our national parks where, you know, you're not allowed to um mountain bike or ride horses, those sort of things. And it's not heavily policed and, and people don't take advantage of it too much. Uh, I guess in our case Often uh, a horse or, you know, some sort of wheeled device is the only way that we're going to be able to get out into those um, yep. national parks and explore those wilderness trails. Um, and I don't believe currently there's any legislation to say that um, you're allowed to use, a, you know, an e-assist bike to access the national park if you're, um, you know, paralyzed or have some sort of disability that, that prevents you from walking in there. Um but I, but I certainly hope there is some provision in there in the future. Um, to, I mean, just just common sense, really. We're, we're not in there riding a bike because we we uh, want to ride a bike. We're in there because we can't walk, <laughs> you know. Yes, exactly. Um, and so, you know, hopefully, um, hopefully, the people that make policy can see that for what it is. It's not um, taking advantage of of that fact. It's just that um, that's our only means of access and a, a way of exploring those areas. Oh man, you're exactly right. Uh, and when I, when I do talks, I, you know, I, I speak a lot of, uh, trails conferences and, and things like that. And I say exactly that. I'm like, Hey man, this is a pretty awesome bike, huh? You think I'd be stoked <laughs> and I am, don't get me wrong, but I don't want this bike. <laughs> yeah. I want to be running barefoot through the jungle, you know? Um, but this bike is, is, is how I get out there and, to tell me that I can't is a violation of civil rights, man. You got to think about it like that. And this is harsh. This is harsh, but it's truth. 
And my girlfriend um, hates it when I say this, but it's just reality. If someone is opposed to it, if they were to break mm-hmm. their back or their neck, would they still hold they the same view? Think differently. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's yeah. super harsh. And, you know, I even cringe when I say it because I don't wish that I'm on, on anybody, but it's true. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> Yeah, your perspective certainly changes when um, when faced with a situation like ours. Heck yeah, hundred um, yeah. percent. Um, so, so those are the obstacles, man. Yeah, they're, they're out there, and you know, there's there's also uh, members of the the same community of the adaptive mountain bike community that don't agree um, with the way I'm doing things, and that's completely fine. I'm totally open to um evolving and changing so that's that's definitely another obstacle too that's an interesting one to field yeah i can see that i I suppose uh (laughs) you know there are there i mean if you're referring to the esist um part of that then you know there there are certainly the purists out there that um uh that don't believe that you know you should be using that i started out that way wanting solely to use my hand powder to go yep. adaptive mountain Me biking. Too. And I quickly discovered that, look, the reality is your arms just aren't as strong as your legs. You you know, you, there's no way you can – there's no way I could keep up with my friends um, on a hand cycle adaptive mountain biking. And actually I didn't, I didn't enjoy – having people walk, you know, past me faster than I could pedal. I, and yep. I, I just didn't enjoy it. And so the e-assist kind of leveled the playing field and and just brought me up to a point where I could um, I could keep up with my friends and I could go further. I could um, I could actually start to get a sense of um, flow and freedom again, right? And, um, and so for anyone out there that doesn't think that's a good idea, well, um, you know, that's, that's your prerogative. Um, but uh, but I certainly do. I'm a I'm a strong proponent of using e assist um, uh, or just straight out e e power to um, to enjoy enjoy the backcountry. Um, yeah, I was one of those purists. I there was no fucking way that I was going to get an e assist bike. Hell no. <laughs> I'm a I'm a young, strong paraplegic. I'm not a quadriplegic. This is what I said to myself in my head. Yeah. Um, I don't, you know, I don't need something powered. I can do this all under my own power. My first um, two adaptive bikes were um, fully manual, and I took them on adventures. Absolutely, um, but <laughs> like you said, um, if anyone was with me, they might as well on any walking next to me on any climb. You know, all my joints and ligaments are all blown out now. Uh, I have a torn rotator cuff, all from riding fully manual bikes mm. over the, over the years. There we go. And, and now you know people are like, "Oh, you don't need a you don't need a e assist because uh, you know you're you're strong or whatever." Like, dude, I've had two neck injuries and I've lost my triceps. <laughs> I can't pedal a manual bike anymore. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I need that. I ha I ha I can't ride without an e. I could ride without an e assist, but I'd be able to go, uh, you know, a couple miles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, totally. I, yeah, I don't know. And so, anyways, I, I, I am a huge supporter of the e assist, and yeah, I call it my equalizer. Um, it levels the playing field. I can 
keep up with my friends. Um, and I just keep it on just like just enough of a setting so I can keep up. Yeah. Nice. I don't have it on full blast and motoring around, you know? Yeah. It's a good way to be. Hey, Jeremy. So where, where can people learn more about this mountain bike project? It's called the unpavement and, um, yeah. How can they be involved? Yeah. Thanks for asking that. Um, the unpavement.org is where, um, we've got a support page that lists all the ways to get involved all the way from volunteering to being an ambassador to, you know, monetary support to helping us on social media. Um, the YouTube channel is also a really good spot. I, I put out a video every Friday about my, my trail experiences and, uh, it's kind of, off color and I think I'm funny. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I kind of, I, I kind of document my trail experiences in a, in a fun way. I put out a video every Friday and that if you just search, uh, uh, Jeremy McGee on YouTube, um, it'll, it should come up and there's links everywhere on the, on the website and everything as well. Fantastic. Well, I'll, I'll add some notes to this, uh, in the, in the show notes, uh, for the, for this podcast, uh, as well. Um, Jeremy, a couple of other questions before we finish up. Um, you know, if you were to give some advice to your 16-year-old self, uh, knowing what you know now, what would that be? My 16-year-old self? Yeah, your 16-year-old self. You don't know shit. <laughs> That's what I would tell myself. <laughs> How would you? Uh, I used to think that I knew everything. <laughs> and that is very untrue. Yeah, you do learn a lot as you go on in life. But uh, um, you know, would he would he be proud of where you are now? I I hope so. I don't know. I don't I don't think he'd know the difference because he didn't know his face from his ass. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Um, you know, I um actually when I was sixteen, um, uh, there was a girl in our high school who was paralyzed in a motorcycle accident, and I remember. Um, being very curious about her hand controls in her car. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember her showing me her car and uh, showing me how she drove and stuff. And I remember being super curious about it. So I don't know. Maybe I should give myself a little more credit. Maybe I, I, th- I, I would hope that I would be curious. Um, I don't know if I'd be proud or whatever, but I, I, I think I would be curious. I actually think it's a really, it's a really good uh, bit of advice is, is to be curious. Like I think if yeah. people – if people are more curious, and this is particularly the case for you know our situation, if you're curious enough to ask about a person's situation, then you're going to learn something, and you're also going to um, enrich your life in, in ways you may not foresee, right? So that's one of my things I try and do all the time. Rather than taking a solid viewpoint on something, I, I like to try and be curious about different ways of looking at things. Um, I love that. That's what um, my girlfriend has brought into my life. She, that's her thing too. That's her number one thing. Like, you know, curiosity, be curious, you know, and, and it's such a good quality to, to emulate. I've learned so much from her about that. And um, yeah, that would be good advice for a 16 year old is just, dude, be curious, man. I think it's a good advice for someone new to this life too, you know, um, (laughs) totally try a whole bunch of things. Try a whole bunch of things. Be be open to the idea of doing doing things differently than than you used to do. And and as Jeremy's clearly illustrated, you can uh, <laughs> you can do so much. You can do so much as um, as someone who's paralyzed. So um, 
Jeremy, it's been an absolute honor to have you on the show, man. I really appreciate your time. And uh, I'm going to check out this Unpavement and see how about uh, I can contribute to this um, mountain biking uh, movement that you've uh, you've started. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're going to click the Be Ambassador link, first of all. <laughs> awesome, mate. And, um, you know, look, if you make it down to New Zealand one day, um, I hope you do. Um, yeah, I'll be, be happy to show you around. Oh, it's happening. <laughs> Excellent. i got to figure out how to fly with my bike now. <laughs> well, this is something interesting I've, I've heard. You, you, uh, your bike is actually a piece of um, mobility equipment. So you yep. should be able to get that on the plane as, as if it's uh, your wheelchair. Um, You're most, right, but mo- I don't trust the airline with it. That's a $1,000 piece of equipment I do not trust them with. Ah. I'm going to show up to wherever I'm going across the world and it's going to be broken. I see, I see. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I get you. I recently had a uh, quite a large Sitski um, bag made up. Um, it's on, uh, yeah. wheel, you know, like uh, caster wheels um, and, you know, made of a solid um, PVC, padded PVC. Um, I like that. And, yeah, that might be one way of, of packaging it. I suppose, you know, you've – you've got that's quite that'd be quite a big bag if you're trying to package that for yeah um, it's got to be it's well, part of traveling with a bike is is um disassembly anyways any anybody yeah. traveling with a regular two-wheel bike has to disassemble their bike so there's going to be disassembly involved and um you know different s- separate packaging for each you know of the parts you know the wheels the frame and you know uh, and other parts yeah that's, it'll, it's going to be like that, yeah. I remember taking a hand cycle to New York to do the marathon there in 2012, and um, yeah, and you know, doing just that, pulling the wheels off and packaging them up and doing all those sort of things. So, um, um, yep. I, I mean, in an ideal world, we have a repository of uh, equipment all over the world that um, you can borrow and and uh, and use. You know. Um, okay. Well, that's what you're working on. Um, get get a bike over there for me. So. There's one waiting for me when I get off the plane. There we go. I think you. you <laughs> ride, <laughs> I'm just kidding. You, you ride. You ride sport on, right? Is that is that your? Um, yep. Yeah. Absolutely. There is a there is a dealer here, Melrose Wheelchairs. I think supply those. And, yep. I've um, uh, I've spoken with them. I'm actually the U.S. dealer for them. And okay. I've, I've spoken with those guys before. I've I've sent them uh, a few customers. Yeah. Right on. Okay. Cool. So, yeah, I know the bikes. They're they're, they're pretty amazing. Or trikes. You know, they're they're awesome. So. And they're getting better. Yeah, they're they're getting better. Yeah. And that's another thing when talking about, you know, accessibility on trails, what's going to make the trails more accessible is the equipment getting better as well. Yeah. Getting better, maybe more affordable too. (laughs) Yeah. Working on that That's tough. So much goes into building these things. It's mind blowing. I never, never knew, man, there it's. Oh yeah. Yeah. So expensive to build. (laughs) It is insane. Yeah, totally. The manufacturer doesn't barely makes anything, um, and the fact that he's even doing it is—I don't even know how he gets by. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, it's tough. It's definitely tough. Yeah. Hey, um, Jeremy, enjoy the rest of your day over there, and um, yeah, mate, thanks so much once again. It's been great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks so much, Mike. This this was fun. Right on, dude. Um, talk soon. Yes, sir. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and meeting today's Adaptifier. To learn more about Adaptify and the products we have in development, products that will increase freedom for wheelchair users, go to adaptdefy.com. That's A-D-A-P-T. 
adefy.com. We're also on all the major social media platforms at Adaptify. Follow us there for more behind-the-scenes looks and more up-to-date information on product releases. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Look forward to catching you next time.